This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Magdalene, a novel, or rather a probability. And the author is Bonnie Jones Reynolds, and Bonnie joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bonnie. Hi there, Stephen. I'm going to read a few things that you have written about your book just to set the stage. The Magdalene is not just another story, another novel, another pious interpretation of the life of Jesus, dutifully basing itself on the facts as presented in the four Gospels. The Magdalene is impious, living and free, while being at the same time a teaching document. You also say that this book is one of the most important books that you have ever read. It's a book, as one reviewer said, to be cherished and sipped like fine wine. In fact, one Amazon reviewer said, I've now reread this book three times and slowly. Each reading gives new insights and additional ways of exploring reality and spirit. Well, you have obviously stretched people's minds and souls with your look at uh, Jesus and that whole, all his teachings. Uh, what was the motivation? Well, actually, it was organic and lifelong. I'm, sev- I'm 73 years old, and uh, I have been studying this stuff for over 50 years. I started at the age of about 10, being very, very interested in Mideastern studies and religious studies. And so I've been at it a long time, and I realized that everything I did throughout my entire life, and I've had quite a checkered career. Uh, (laughs) uh, If anybody wants to read my uh, bio, my full bio, that's on my website, which we can get to later. But um, I, um, everything that I've done led up to this. And it's not as though I just woke up one morning and said, ah, I'm going to write a book about the Magdalene. No, this book insisted upon being written. It basically wrote itself. I can tell you that I remember doing all the research, but whenever Jesus, who I call Josh, or the Magdalene, began to teach or to speak, I do not remember writing a word of that. And it's not that I was uh, channeling. I truly believe, I believe this with all my heart, that I was remembering. I believe that I was there 2,000 years ago and that I heard this, and that what I wrote in this book is very close to the truth of what happened. And I had to write. I believe that I was, uh, that I'm a foot soldier, that I was uh, instructed 2,000 years ago to be back here at this time and this place to put this out to the world. I'm, I'm one of many, many hundreds of thousands of foot soldiers, but uh, I think we all have our instructions to get the message out, and we're all working very hard to do that. So tell us, who is the Magdalene? Well, that uh, we, would, uh, we would know her as Mary Magdalene. 
the the supposed uh, quote unquote prostitute, and of course that nowhere does it say she was a prostitute. She was not a prostitute. As a matter of fact, she was a very wealthy woman. Uh, the business of her being a prostitute was instituted uh, two to three hundred years ago by a pope who decided to preach a sermon and decided to call her a prostitute. And that's where that belief came in. And she was never, ever thought of as a prostitute until uh, that pope uh, called her one. Why do you say that the four Gospels are contradictory in regard to Jesus? Oh, well, they are. I mean, uh, all you have to do is uh, read them. Um, what you, what you have in the four gospels is a uh, is a compilation of uh, myth of possibly some uh, true stories of of uh, outright fabrication on the part of some of the writers. Uh, you know th- these these gospels were not even uh, uh, available in anywhere near the uh the um form that we know them until close to the year 200 many many years after uh Jesus supposedly uh died uh you you get you get uh one Jesus who says uh you know put away your sword and i i come to bring peace and in another one he says i am the uh i come to bring a sword uh you have one Jesus who is preaching love and compassion and understanding, and another who is uh, shouting fire and brimstone. Uh, it is my contention, uh, and th- I believe that uh, that I'm uh, presenting the thing in a very uh, truthful manner. That there were at least at least two men whose stories were uh, combined. One of them was the fire and brimstone fellow, and the other was the true prince of peace, my Josh. Uh, and um, uh, the the stories of these two, the followers of these two men, uh, ended up combining things together and trying to make one story out of it, which is why you get uh, you get bounced back and forth like crazy uh, if you bo- if you sit down and read those the first four gospels. Just sit down and read them, and you will find out that they don't make any sense at all the way they're presented. So you maintain what we know as Christianity would be rejected by Jesus today? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. He was uh, he was anti priesthood. He was anti organized religion. He was he uh, was more of uh, the Gnostics uh, came closer. To uh, to putting forth the true teachings of Jesus, which is that that uh, God, quote unquote, is is all. God is everything. God is all that is, and uh, we are each a part of God. And that that the that spirituality resides inside each one of us and has nothing to do with any kind of organized religion. Organized religion is organized by those who want power and glory and control over the sheep. We're, abs- we're very aptly named the sheep. You know, sheep just uh, go bat and follow wherever anyone leads them. And uh, it, is, it is to the benefit of those who would be rich and who would have power and control to uh, have the sheep following blindly uh, with, with an organized uh, agenda of what they are told they must believe in. 
So we're talking about a method of control by an elite of what Absolutely. they call themselves Christians? Uh-huh. Yeah. In, yeah. The, in the church, you're saying that they've really done this for just power and riches? Uh, yes, unfortunately, if you look back through the history of the Catholic Church, um, you cannot find a, uh, a better example of a corruption, of avarice, of greed, of, uh, I mean, it's just horrible when you study, when you study the history of the papacy. It, it's, uh, you know, it'll, it'll curl your teeth. Uh, and uh, the, the whole thing was for power and glory. Let's face it, you know, uh, the more power and wealth and, and, uh, and control you give people, the more they want. Look at our world today. So when we talk about controversy, your book is just filled with it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But the thing that people have, I, I want people to realize that... Um, a lot of people are afraid to read the Magdalene. They say, oh, you know, it might take my faith away from me, or it might challenge what I've been told I'm supposed to believe. Uh, this book is not going to take anything away from you. The, what I have found, interestingly enough, is that uh, some of the, of the people who love it the most are um, uh, people who were raised Catholic and, and are, are very uh, faithful Catholics. They love this book. They find that it's giving them that the Magdalene will give to you. It was not going to take anything away. You're going to come out loving Jesus and understanding Jesus and with, with, with more uh, spirituality and wonderful things in your heart than your church ever gave you. Tell us about what you call the male bias of the church. <laughs> You've got to be kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's going on right now. I mean, why aren't women priests? Uh, it's Jesus. I, when you look at Jesus, one of the, the true parts that did get into the Gospels was the fact that there were many women, he had many women followers. Of course, they were, uh, when the writers wrote about them, they were relegated to a second position. But if you look at the Gnostic Gospels that were dug up in the, uh, in the deserts of Egypt, back in about 1946, uh, they make it very obvious, obvious that Mary Magdalene was uh, the chosen, the chosen, if you want to call pope or leader, that he had chosen her as the one who could go forward and put his philosophy and his wishes and his teachings forward better than anyone else. And Peter was wildly jealous of, of this woman wildly jealous and of course the uh luke uh rather not luke uh paul uh, who was saul and became what we think of as as uh, saint paul was also viciously anti-feminine and uh this whole thing got put forward over to the church where women were considered to be um fourth, fifth, sixth class class uh, uh, citizens, and they still are to this day, as far as the church is concerned. You claim that Jesus was married. Oh yes, oh yeah, definitely. The way to, the wedding at Cana was was his wedding to Mary Magdalene. Uh, if if you look at it, when when you have um, uh, Mary coming to Jesus and saying, "God, we're running out of wine." 
you know, we got to do something about it. We're running out of wine. How many weddings have you ever gone to where the guests concern themselves with the fact that they're running out of wine? This is what the hosts do. The hosts are the ones who make sure that there are there's enough wine for the guests. And that one little thing alone tips you off to the fact that this was the wedding of Jesus, and it was his mother, the hostess, coming to the host and saying, hey, we got to have more wine, do something, you know, put your hands on that barrel and make some, make some wine out of it. You also say that everything about the Magdalene is relevant to our current world. Yes, it, at the time that, uh, that Jesus lived, it was at the turn of a double millennium. Uh, and uh, double millenniums are times of great change and great chaos. And uh, if you look at what was going on there, uh, I, I take great pains in the Magdalene to help the reader understand the political, social, religious, everything that was going on. And it was a madhouse. It was a total madhouse. And this is exactly what is happening now, which is why those of us who were given the message back then are back here again to get the message out in a better way because we never in the history of the world has have we been in as much contact with one another as we are now with the Internet, with your tweeting and Twittering, and heaven only knows what else. Um, this is a time when a message can get out and go worldwide uh, in, in, in hours, in days. And uh, that's what we are here for, to, to get this message out at this time of great chaos. And the interesting thing is that what was going on in Palestine at that time is uh, Palestine was, was a hotbed of chaos, and look at what is happening in Palestine today. The Magdalene is a story whose time has come, you write. Truth's time has come. Meet your friend Jesus, who you can truly love, even adore for the first time in your life, and laugh with him, love with him, dance with him. Yeah. That's a, uh, you know, obviously you portray him as just your friend. Uh, he is absolutely your When you come out of this, you will have the best new friends in the world. My Josh is just the greatest guy you ever met. Everyone is going to come away absolutely loving this man. Anything else you'd like to share with us? We have about a minute. Well, the, what I would share with you is that uh, this book is desperately needed right now. Uh, this book, and, and I can say this because uh, I am not sure how much of it came from me and how much of it came from memory. I think a great deal of it came from memory and is the truth of the situation. And we need that truth now. We are desperate to find a spirituality within ourselves right now. Our world needs it or so desperately we're going to destroy our world unless we can find that spirituality. And the Magdalene will help you find that. And you have a website. Yes, it's plain old Bonnie Jones Reynolds dot com. And uh, you can read, uh, as I said, you can read my very exciting biography on that. <laughs> and you, we can also get it from uh, other retailers, online retailers? Oh, yeah. Amazon uh, uh, is uh, available through uh, Barnes & Noble, Baker & Taylor, uh, and uh, through my own website, sure. Bonnie, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you. 
That was Bonnie Jones Reynolds. She is the author of her book, The Magdalene, a novel, or rather, a probability. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central, on Toginet with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus, NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Mom with Jill Hickey, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Innovation and insight, problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions helping you identify the real problems and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence and, more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teach us how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time with author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Let Them Have Books, a formula for universal reading proficiency. And the author is Gabby Chapman, and Gabby joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Gabby. Hi there. I'm going to read a few things you've written about your book just to set the stage. You say this, Let Them Have Books presents a model for a reading education that will deliver the skill and the lifelong love of reading to every child. This model consists of extensive pre-literacy experience, early recognition and resolution of potential difficulties in learning to read, and a dynamic reading culture in schools that is centered on encouraging kids to choose their own books. Well, that all makes sense. Why aren't we doing that everywhere? (laughs) Well, that's a a very good question (laughs) and a a long answer. (laughs) And a long answer. That's why you wrote the book. (laughs) Yeah. Well, give us some of your background, Gabby, and also the motivation to uh, publish this book. My recent background is being a teacher. Um, I've been an English teacher for the last eight or nine years, and I've spent most of my life involved in education in one form or another. I was on a school board for a while, was the president of a school board. Uh, I grew up with an uncle who was a writer, uh, John Holt, about wrote about education and spent a lot of time in our house talking about it. 
so it's been a concern of mine my whole life. I wrote this book because so many children struggle with reading in school. First of all, I can always remember somebody saying to me, read to your little kids, read to them, and they will love reading. Is it that simple? It's it's not that simple, but it, that's very important. I actually have one thing that I say before that, before you read to your kids, is read yourself, enjoy reading yourself, um, because yes, it does help to read to kids, but if you love to read yourself when you are reading to them, you will impart that love to them and that it is something to enjoy. The only reason that kids are going to read enough for to really benefit them is if they enjoy it and they learn that joy from their parents reading to them. So yes, but also read books for your own pleasure, not just to your kids. So it doesn't, you don't want it to be mechanical. You, they want to feel that from you because it's just natural then. If you love reading, then it's going to come, that kind of love is going to be felt by the child. It, it is true, and it's a funny thing, but there's also a study that's been done that has shown that households that have lots of books in them, even if the kids don't read the books, those kids do better in school learning how to read than kids who don't have households full of books. So it's just that environment and that statement and that feeling for books that's transferred to kids that goes a long way to helping them learn how to read and be successful with reading. So is this part of this poor literary experience? Is that what you're saying? The early literary experience, yes. Um, When kids enter school... Some kids have heard thousands more words than others. They've been read to. They they recognize more words. They have stronger vocabulary. They know books. They love books. They're interested in books. And these kids have an immense advantage over the kids who don't have that. And really, it can take maybe never, but, you know, it takes a long time for those kids to catch up who don't have that pre-literacy experience. What causes a child to hate to read? The, the number one thing that causes a child to hate to read is being forced to read books or, or stories that they're not interested in reading at all, which would be bad enough, but then after you force them to read something they don't want to read, forcing them to do exercises on them, explain what they read that they didn't want to read, <laughs> take tests on what they read that they don't didn't want to read. In other words, taking all the joy out of reading and making it a chore. That's the number one thing. The other thing, of course, is not doing the opposite, not providing them with uh, books that they will enjoy so they can learn to love it. So it's key then that the system allow them to read what they want to read, you're saying? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, it seems like that could be taken to the extreme. For well, ex- For example, my son who just devoured books, but he seemed to read a lot of science fiction. Uh-huh. And I used to think, wow, that's all he seems to be doing is reading science fiction. He's reading a lot of books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But... You know he he's uh he's very verbal and he's a manager in a business so maybe it all worked out. <laughs> well, that's exactly it. 
you know, I don't know myself how you can take it to extreme. Um, I have, from my own experience, I have watched kids who start out reading science fiction or gets, you know, even younger than that, they get stuck in certain types of series. And if they read enough, they're going to get bored with the same old, same old and move on. The only, and particularly if they start young, the quantity that they can read over the course of their school years, they're bound to move on to something else because there just isn't enough books in that, in a narrow genre. Uh, I have not seen um, it being carried to an extreme, and I've seen kids who read a lot of books. You say that school is the best place for kids to read books. The reason for that is that it's a peer environment and that is very encouraging, and there's also been studies that show that kids who read from their own books in school have more time in school compared to kids who do the same reading at home, the ones that do it in school gain more from it. That's because they share with their friends, they get support from their friends and their classmates for being a reader, and also because school is a learning place, and reading is the best way to learn. Also, school is the best place to access books. If Hopefully, school has a really good library. Kids can go there to read during school, find new books, and also, there's so many distractions at home these days with um, TV and uh, media and video games and and lots of other things. So a school can be a really quiet, supportive place for kids to read. What's the best way to reward a child for reading? Find that child another book that they'll like as much as the book they just read. Ooh. That's uh, wouldn't have thought of that. I, I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking a lot of other things. The candy bar, yeah, all the other stuff, you know, that, money, yeah, you know, that stuff that doesn't really, uh, I guess, mean much, right? Right. <laughs> In the long run, anyway. And if if a, if a kid is really enjoying reading, that will be the best reward. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. So your book is broken down into different parts. You have why kids should read, why kids don't read, what kids need to become readers. Now, there's a real challenge, dyslexia. How do we deal with that? Dyslexia is a, a different brain structure, and I explain it to a great depth in my book. Um, and Learning to read is basically connecting different parts of the brain to come up with one product, and that is uh, visual symbols, sounds, and meaning. And when a brain is structured in such a way that that connection isn't made as efficiently, it makes it harder to learn to read. And unfortunately, in our school system, something gets tacked onto that because usually not discovered until a kid's fairly far along in the learning to read process, and so they slip behind, they have to get extra help, they're separated out, uh, they're labeled as special education, they, they feel that there's something wrong with them, and they get this sort of added trauma um, that goes on top of that. So I, I devote quite a bit in my book to that. My feeling, and from what I have observed, is if it's recognized early enough and if uh, special training is is given to the child, that it does not need to be the trauma. And all 
dyslexic uh, children can become readers and very good readers. Now, the three words, practice, 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 which we use in a lot of different uh, uh, skills we're trying to learn, does that apply here the same way? Oh, absolutely. But this, in this case, practice is reading. Yes, reading and, and reading what you enjoy to read. Yes. So, and if you if so, you enjoy it, you're going to read a lot of it, so you're going to get lots right. of practice. So the practice isn't something that is the same like practicing the piano over and over and again where you might get tired of the same old piece that you're trying to learn. Well, it's like uh, my husband's a piano player, and he doesn't practice. He just plays. Mm, okay. <laughs> so, so that's a, a different way of looking at it. He has lots of fun doing it. There's nothing he'd rather do, I think. Um, and he gets better by doing it, and that's the same thing with okay. uh, reading. Okay, we have some time at the end here to make a few comments. I'd like you to comment on what's the best advice, the one piece of advice to tell a parent. And we also want you to tell teachers and and administrators and also legislators. So let's start with the parent. What's the number one thing parent must do? Well, as I said earlier, the, the number one thing parent, teacher, educators should do is read be literate yourself, love to read yourself. Only then, and only then, can you feel the, the passion about passing that on to children, and that is the only way that they will pick it up also. Um, so that's, that's the number one thing. And what was the second part of that question? Well, I was just, you know, that, that applies to parents, teachers, administrators, and legislators. Right. And the second because thing that forms an attitude about reading, then doesn't yes. it? Okay. And the second thing, number one thing, is access. The main reason kids themselves say they don't read more than they do is they don't have access to the books they want to read. They need to have the choices. They need to have the time to read it, but they need to have access to it. And currently, in our education system, access is being shut down. Libraries are being cut back. A lot of schools don't even put in libraries, and uh, summer uh, school libraries are not open. Kids don't have access to books, and if they have access to them, they will read them. Where do you see children losing interest in reading? Where does that happen? What what age is well, most vulnerable? It, it happens, it begins about fourth grade, and it accelerates throughout the school year. So it's, you know, it's the 12th grade, more dislike reading than any other grade. So it's something that is being learned in school. Once they learn how, they're excited, they want to read, they have a positive feeling about books that slowly disintegrates as they pass through the school system. And today you say that by 12th grade, fewer than 25% of them like to read, and their right. reading test scores hit bottom. That's a real disadvantage for the rest of their lives. It's a real disadvantage, and it's totally unnecessary. I can, I can completely see a situation where 95 to 100% of seniors love to read and have a very positive attitude toward it. The title of the book, Let Them Have Books, a formula for universal reading proficiency. And the author is Gabby Chapman. Gabby, tell us how to get your book. It's available wherever books are sold. I also have a website, Let Them Have Books, 
com, one word, all lowercase. My website has a lot of information also for parents and teachers. Well, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Gabby. You're welcome. That was Gabby Chapman, author of her book, Let Them Have Books, a formula for universal reading proficiency. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Dix of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Togginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriended principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com and then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Unlimited Progress, The Grand Illusion of the Modern World. And the author is Dr. Dennis Knight Hefner. And Dr. Hefner joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Steve. Good to have you with us. I'm going to read a few things you've written to kind of set the stage for what we're going to talk about. Your book, Unlimited Progress, The Grand Delusion of the Modern World. You say this, most people have a bias towards seeing the world as they would like it to be. It might be for some purposes, however, to know the world as it actually is. And, of course, reality can be scary you're talking about progress. Uh, there's most misleading ideas permeating the modern world is this concept that progress can almost be unlimited. Well, that's not true, is it? It's not quite true. That's something that most people don't seem to quite realize, and it's becoming a very, very fundamental problem uh, in our world because uh, you've got to keep your feet on the ground and uh, understand the way things really are, or you're going to make some bad mistakes. 
Well, we talk about science. We talk about political science. Uh, you have a, a background in, in science. That's correct. Uh, I studied mathematics and uh, physics and engineering in college, and then I decided to go to medical school. And, of course, medical school preparation for it uh, requires a fair amount of science. So I, I do consider myself having a science background. Well, when we talk about political science, I, I don't know if, if that's the right term anymore. I don't know if there's a real science to politics. It's a misleading term. <laughs> yes, it is a misleading term. That's for sure. Now, why do this book? Why go down this road, Doctor? Well, I think that um, the book can serve um, uh, people in many ways in sort of thinking uh, about the future, whether it's short-term future or a longer-term future. Uh, everybody sort of tries to plan for the future a little bit. It's, it's, it's ingrained in us. It's necessary for us to plan ahead a little bit. And in order to um, uh, plan for the future as best one can, and it's often difficult or impossible, at least in the long term, you've got to understand what the world is like right now, what reality uh, really is in order to try as best you can to plan for the future. And I think my book, even though my book doesn't really predict much about the future, I try to give people some understanding, a better understanding of what uh, what the world is like really now so that they can then make their plans for the future as best they can. So how did we become hooked on progress, this addiction that seems to, at least in our own minds, we think is never-ending? I mean, you, you, your book kind of addresses the history of it, right? Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's mainly because of science and technology over the last, uh, well, particularly 200 years. Uh, and uh, our... our um, uh, lives, our society, our governments, uh, the way we live has been influenced so much by the tremendous advances in science and technology that I think science and technology, because of all the tremendous progress that it has had over the last couple of hundred years, it has infected uh, society in general. In other words, we sort of expect the same sorts of, same types of progress in uh, society in general, in government, uh, in political activities, in economic activity, economic growth. We expect progress to be just like it has been in science and technology. And unfortunately, uh, that's not quite true. Yeah, we always uh, want well, at least you hear the the premise that we want things better for our children than we had it. Oh, yes. That's, like, yeah. You know, like there was something wrong with what we have. <laughs> there isn't <laughs> enough or something. I don't right. know. <laughs> and, of course, that's the American dream. That, right. You know, our children will have it better than we have, and that's... That's our American dream. And, of course, there's real value in that kind of thinking. Obviously, you, you know, that drives uh, free enterprise. It drives capitalism. And, and all that is critical to uh, progress in many areas as well that are needed. I mean, of course, we, we wouldn't, none of us would want to go back to the old days when uh, medicine or the medical uh, practices were so crude. Right, right. 
Who would I want agree. to go back to that? I mean, nobody would. <laughs> right, I agree. And uh, uh, we probably can, you know, maintain uh, and maybe even increase our uh, worldly uh, benefits, uh, but it's just not going to be as uh, as as great and as rapid as it has been. And in some areas, uh, we have to start getting used to the idea that, um, you know, even though our children, if we do things right, they, they may be as well off as we are, or almost as well off, but they may not be better off. Right. Uh, well, you have some uh, interesting titles to some chapters. I'm looking at them and. Like the digital delusion of neurophysiology. <laughs> yeah. What, well, what are we talking about there? Well, that's one of the my favorite subjects in that it has sort of colored a lot of uh, thinking in some areas um, throughout the last half century. And when I say some areas, in, in, in the way that people conceive the brain uh, as working mm-hmm. and uh, whether artificial intelligence can eventually make our lives greater and greater. Uh, unfortunately, even though most people throughout the last half century have thought that the brain probably uh, it works on a basis of digital information processing, just like computers do, and people have felt that computers uh, can have an analogy to to the human brain. Unfortunately, the brain works on a different basis. It's not a digital information processor, and uh, that makes a whole lot of difference in terms of what one can do in terms of uh, understanding the brain, controlling the brain, and uh, making advances in artificial intelligence. There's been a lot of misconceptions uh, over the last half century. A lot of news about the economy right now. Of course, we hear the term, we want to grow the economy. This is so important. This is so critical. It's like we're obsessed with that. If we're going to recover from this current recession, what about all this growing, growing talk? Well, unfortunately, and especially for our our children, uh, it, it's just not going to be able to be, we're not going to be able to grow our way out of this sort of problem, at least uh, easily or to the extent that a lot of people uh, think we're going to grow. In other words, uh, I think growing is, um, I think there is some evidence that growing is starting to become more difficult. We can sort of see that now in the economy. And it's probably going to become even more difficult in the future. I'm not going to say that all growth in all areas is going to shortly stop. But overall, I think it's going to be harder to continue economic and social, political growth and improvement. And if we don't realize that and take it into account, uh, we're probably going to make some very bad uh, political and governmental missteps and, and, and judgments that may cause more harm than, than good. There's something called, that you call, deterministic chaos, uh, chaos theory. It's uh, something that you say that we need to understand in order to understand the world. Well, I think it's very, very important. 
Uh, and most people have heard of chaos theory, but they don't know a lot about it, and it's a very difficult subject to to try to understand. But I think that uh, our uh, social, political, governmental systems, our society in general, is um, a, a, a very complex system that has some chaotic types of behavior. Now, when I say chaotic, chaos theory does not mean that things are just totally random and totally screwed up, but it means that the very complex system uh, is rather unpredictable and even more important that tiny little influences, influences that you wouldn't think would make much difference, can have huge impacts on the way the system works, particularly a little farther down the line, a little farther in the future. So little minor uh, political, social decisions, governmental decisions, if the... uh, the social political system is somewhat chaotic, like I'm pretty sure it is, little tiny decisions can have huge consequences. And if they're the wrong decisions, they can have hugely adverse uh, effects on the function of the system. So chaos theory is important for people at least to have some grasp, some idea of its implications. Now, we hear the term uh, progressive liberal today, and we hear uh, this this group advocating a better world where everyone uh, helps each other and, and this utopia kind of, of existence. What's your view of utopia? <laughs> well, uh, utopia has been, the idea of utopia has been influenced over the last three centuries or so, by Newtonian physics and the idea that everything can kind of be determined and controlled. Uh, We have felt that we sort of live in a clockwork universe. That is, everything, uh, if you have enough data, you can see that it kind of works perfectly and deterministically, and if so, certainly you can control such systems if you have enough information. And in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century, there's a very important um, uh, sort of uh, philosophy, a uh, uh, scientific philosophy called logical positivism, uh, which sort of uh, uh, developed this idea, and it was the idea that even language in our culture uh, could be sort of controlled and influenced toward a perfection. And in the early part of the uh, 20th century, the political idea of pro- progressivism, uh, the progressive philosophy, was sort of built on these types of ideas. That is, a governmental bureaucracy could learn to control our governance uh, toward a perfection and this is indeed a delusion. It can't happen in a uh, chaotic system like our, our social systems are. And so these utopian ideas that we can get close to or even a, attain perfection in our social and governmental 
systems, it's, it's, it's a delusion. And uh, people should remember that the word utopia in the original Greek um, uh, means no place. That's the literal meaning. And uh, <laughs> No place. <laughs> yeah, no place. And so utopia will forever remain nowhere to be found because it's no place. Interesting. My goodness. Well, what would be your advice, uh, just some kind of closing thoughts, we've got a couple minutes here. What would be your advice to young people today as they look toward the future? What kind of a perspective do they need to have on their future? Well, they need to be Republicans to start off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, my, my son's going to call you right away and argue with you. <laughs> Because the the Republicans uh, are, are tend mostly to be conservative, and a conservative political philosophy now is more important than ever. Uh, because conservatives tend to be the ones that think a little more realistically about the world. Uh, they apply some breaks to the runaway governmental machine and breaks to prevent us going down the wrong tracks at ever-increasing speeds are, are more important nowadays than they were before. So um, I think that uh, young people need to really uh, think about which political party they want to be associated with, and hopefully most of them will realize that a conservative philosophy is best, and therefore they'll have to be Republicans. And if they don't like some aspects of the Republican Party, then they're going to have to get their hands dirty and try to change the party within. But uh, it's certainly going to be the best party for them to, uh, to be associated with. The title of the book, Unlimited Progress, The Grand Delusion of the Modern World. Any closing thoughts, Doctor? Um, I just hope someone uh, has uh, got the energy to read my book. Uh, it's a little difficult in places, but I think anybody who is a thinker, who reads uh, nonfiction, is interested in the world, uh, and that includes a lot of people, I think they'll find something valuable in my book. You say you're a pessimist. Uh, someone told me that a pessimist is an optimist with the facts. <laughs> I, I think that's right. I think I, I, I can have a little bit of optimism in that uh, things may not be as bad as in the future as they could be. If we do things right, we can maybe muddle through. <laughs> so that, that's my optimistic view. If we're lucky, we can muddle through. Muddle through. All right. Well, tell us how to get your book, Dr. Hefner. Well, it's published by iUniverse, and um, uh, it can be uh, uh, obtained uh, through them. But, of course, it's available uh, other places, too, on Amazon.com and uh, in Borders bookstores and, other, and some other bookstores. Well, thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you, Steve. I appreciate it very much. That was Dr. Dennis Knight Hefner. He is the author of his book, Unlimited Progress. The Grand Delusion of the Modern World. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. 
iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.